Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Victoria. And Kara's not here. <laughs> There's an empty spot where she normally sits. She's okay. She's just got a couple of voice problems at the moment, um, like a bug or something. And so she's not in today, sadly. But Luke and Victoria will go on, will march on. So yeah, Lord of the Flies. It's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a classic in terms of, well... The fact that every high school kid in Australia basically has to read it. And I'm it's not... on every list on the internet saying, you know, books you need to read before you die. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess I figured I might as well get <laughs> one out of the way. I vaguely remember it from year 10 um, or year 9 or something. Uh, and the only thing I remember about it is something towards the end, which we'll reveal in due time. And the fact that I didn't actually read it. I just watched the film. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think I had more important things to do at that age, like play video games, which is much more important. But nonetheless, Lord of the Flies, it was great to to revisit it, uh, to revisit something that most high school children in Australia and possibly the entire English speaking world have to read. Um, no, just, I didn't. So this is the first didn't. time for me. Really? Yeah. I'm actually interested to know why. Um, it, I, I suppose we kind of went with more avant-garde texts. I don't know why, but I've never come across this text before. A bit more avant-garde texts. (laughs) Lord of the Flies. Now, um, I don't really know what to say. I mean, it's been adapted that many times. It probably feels like it's a story that's like in a million stories these days. But it's about a group of boys, uh, about sort of primary, early to late primary school age. So, about 6 to Mm, 12-ish. Yeah. who are in a plane crash. It's not quite clear why the plane crashes. Piggy, Piggy says something about them being attacked, but I don't really think that's what it is. I think that must have been just something. Yeah, like it's engine. a bit hard to tell because all you go on is the witness accounts of the boys, which are a bit vague, and you don't know if they're being affected by their imagination. But nonetheless, it seems like the impression that you get is that the world is at war, and this these boys, for an indeterminate reason, uh, are on a plane back to England. And they get shot down somewhere, or not quite shot down, they crash somewhere in an ocean somewhere. It's all very vague. Mm, it's uh, extremely but- vague. Even when they land on the landmass, they don't even know if it's an island yet. Yeah. And there's yeah. a whole chapter about finding out that it's an island. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so these boys don't actually know each other. Uh, aside from uh, there's one group of boys who are part of a scholar or a choir or something like that. And yeah, I think King's College or something like that, because they have robes, I think, and hats. and Yeah, yeah. So, they they're very, very proper yeah. uh, and, and very well drilled. But all the rest of the boys don't know each other. And it kind of follows uh, how these boys go from trying to find their way around the island, uh, trying to set up a life for themselves, but being affected Firstly, by the problem of being just primary school age boys. Most of them aren't interested in the idea of being rescued. They're more interested in playing. Um, They're not interested in the idea of rules or order. They're just interested in doing their own thing. Slowly, this develops into something much more sinister, though, because as it becomes apparent um, that there's leadership tussles and that one boy in particular, Jack, who's the leader of the aforementioned uh, Choir. choir, has his own... Leadership intentions and his own, I guess, choleric... What's the word I'm looking for? Inclinations. 
choleric inclinations, indeed, to, I to deal with. I suppose it's not like intentions. It's more him wanting to retain what he had over in England. So he, it's um, shown that he is the leader of the choir and that once he gets to the island, um, basically that means nothing. And he's a bit shocked that that means nothing. Yeah, and so it follows a, a, a sort of descent into madness and a descent into chaos away from the civilization that the boys came from into a murderous, violent, savage society that these boys set up. And that's basically the story. Uh, it just shows their descent into this madness. And then, spoiler alert, several of the characters get killed. And, spoiler alert, several of the characters' uh, minds compromised basically yeah yeah and these things are brought about because of as i said uh jack the leader of the choir's um own uh political aspirations and his own pride which i intend to get into later on but also this fear uh Mm. around the island this fear of this beast which which i always always heard them saying in like a scottish accent even though i don't think they were scottish i think towards the end of the book they stop they just keep calling it the beast and (laughs) as it turns out what it is again spoiler alert as it turns out what it is is that first of all we don't actually know initially what the beast is Mm, because there is no beast sort of thing but that's um but then about halfway through the book there's another plane crash a pilot presumably a fighter pilot um abandons their plane but obviously has dies somehow hitting their head or something on the plane and parachutes down to the top of the mountain and gives off this impression of being alive because their parachute keeps coming up and pulling them up like a leaning upwards and because mm-hmm. they have all of their pilot's gear on and they only ever keep seeing this thing at night because they only go up to the mountain at night they're, they're fairly well um, convinced that this beast exists and that it's living at the top of the mountain and this drives them all a little bit mad that combined with as I said, the political aspirations, the lack of order, the lack of civilization, and essentially fallen human nature. Mm. Now, the first thing that I kind of wanted to go into here, it's not going to be so much Catholics read, um, but just a general observation was that personally, I mean, we should probably put this out there first of all, that this won the Nobel Prize for Literature. So... Anything we say here can possibly be taken with a grain of salt, although we all know that Nobel laureates are not necessarily free from imperfection or always correct. Don't want to make any political statements there. But nonetheless, (laughs) um, this book is apparently a fantastic book. And the reason why I say the word apparently is because I spent about the first half of the book frustrated with... um, the level of description. Ah, <laughs> uh, I mean, I can kind of understand it's a, it's possibly coming from a sort of novel. It's sort of trying to be a bit of a small novel where you do have a lot of these descriptions, but it just spends like pages and pages describing lakes and mountains and trees. And like, there'll be conversation and the conversation will like cut Halfway in the middle of the conversation, because one of the boys is staring out uh, onto the ocean and it just goes, ah, and it's just so frustrating (laughs) after a while. Um, And I mean, maybe that's because I am a millennial or a Generation Y or something um, who has absolutely no attention span, who sits on Facebook and, and can't take anything that's more than 140 characters. But 
No, look, I'm going to back you up here. I mean... Yeah, um, the, the person I, with the, the literature background is going to back me so up. So, a lot of my degree involves studying a uh, heap load of literature. And um, I, too, found the level of description a little bit tedious. I mean, I'm, I'm all for description. Um, I love it, um, especially when it's done well. Uh, however, I found it was very... Uh, just kind of... It, it made it very slow-paced, and when there was dialogue, um, you the dialogue was was mercy. It was just merciful. The fact that there was just straight dialogue but and it stuff like that. It wasn't even that there was like <clears throat> it was slow-paced. It felt like it was jarring. It like- it was jarring. But the thing is, um, you know, I suppose there might be listeners on the other end of here being like, "Oh, it's all well and good to, you know, say this is bad, like a bad dis- example of description and." But, you know, what's a good example? And I'd just like to put it out there that if you're looking for lots of description but excellent description, I would really recommend um, Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame, especially the chapter that describes the fake invalids getting up and walking down the shadowy alley. That is perfection in terms of description. But this is just, as Luke said, lakes and trees and gleaming and it's just, it's not necessary. It got to the point where I would see a long paragraph, see that it was describing a tree, skip to the end of the paragraph, see that they were just finished describing the tree and then get on with business and read some more. Now, what I thought was probably the point where initially, you know, the first, say, three quarters of the book, I'm like, this is just a pain to read. And I mean, yeah, there was good stuff happening, but it just felt like it was... It was just plodding along uh, and, you know, there was the whole thing about the beast and that. But, you know, it just felt like it required a large investment for me to try and get, you know, two paces in terms of plot progression. However, the book really finds its feet, I think, about the point where everything descends into madness, <laughs> which is quite <laughs> funny. Um, because that's the point where he stops describing stuff and starts telling us what happens, you know, and the action really picks up. And again, I must probably sound like like a, a sugar-hyped 10-year-old or something like that um, because it's like, oh, the action happens. Bang, bang, you know, fire. No, I mean, like... In terms of really getting to the nitty-gritty thing about exploring uh, social, political and psychological aspects of the book. It all kind of happens, all happens at the there. end. Um, I mean, this this stuff explored right at the start, um, and I mean, to be honest, I I try not to read commentaries of things before I do these shows so that they're not coloured, but apparently this book was a response to another book called The Coral Sea, which was like exactly the same thing except the total opposite. It was kind of like this idealistic like view. Like a utopia of, sort of Yeah, thing. like these boys kind of being on an island and building up this great civilization. I think... Okay. Maybe it's not quite. Maybe I'm getting that mixed up with another book that was a response to Lord of the Flies. But nonetheless, apparently that was it. Maybe, just maybe, he was kind of doing something there with his descriptions. Um, I'm not sure. So now that we've got that up. <laughs> something had to get off our chest. Only like 12 minutes in, but we've got <laughs> that off our chest. Hopefully you're still listening. From a Catholic perspective, something that I found really fascinating about it was... The idea that once you take away civilization, um, or not even taking away civilization, but once you take away a sense of order, take away a sense of virtue, I guess would be the weird word that I would use. Take away a sense of enforcement. Um, and I mean that in the best way possible. Well, and encouragement. Like a sense of civilization. I mean, a quote that I think is really good in terms of what you're talking about is when um, 
Roger is looking off at, I think, who is it? Henry. Henry's looking out into the distance, just kind of minding his own business, and Roger, overcome with this boyish need to chuck stuff at him, starts chucking rocks. And he talks about how he's deliberately missing him because there's this bubble around Henry, this this protection of civilization. So the little quote here is, "Round the squatting child was the protection of parents and school and policemen and the law. Roger's arm was conditioned by a civilization that knew nothing of him and was in ruins. So I suppose that's what Luke's talking about in terms of when you take away authority, virtue in some instances, or any, any semblance of civilization, you know, it's interesting to see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think what that kind of speaks about there is that uh, the way that I would put it is that the room temperature of fallen humanity, I like that term room temperature, the room temperature of fallen humanity is pride and violence. And that's really what happens here in this book. I mean, of course, they're children. But what it tries to speak about is that for these children, once the civilizing forces of adults uh, and governance and law enforcement, things like that, once they disappear and there doesn't seem to be any kind of reason to obey these rules that they had back at home, it descends into madness. Now, I want to kind of be careful with that because I don't want to give the impression that perhaps this is what Mr. Golding. Mr. Golding. Perhaps this is what Mr. Golding was trying to say, but I would strongly disagree with it because I'm a Catholic. The (laughs) idea that humans are only good because they're forced to be good by power, Um, that we're basically in this hostage situation by civilization. I don't mean that at all. I think humans are perfectly capable of the good. Um, but at the same time, I'm not, again, <laughs> I'm, I'm a Catholic and I also know that humans are fallen by their very nature and that left unchecked, humans do have this capacity to be ruled by their pride. And I think that that is where things go awry here. Now, I remember back when I studied this in year 10, as I mentioned, watching the film, I think I probably read, like, the first couple of pages, um, played a bunch <laughs> of video games instead. Um, Maybe perhaps watch the Simpsons episode that's loosely based on Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was great reading the bit that's like, kill the pig. And all I could think was, kill the nerd. <laughs> <laughs> we can all eat slime. <laughs> <laughs> How's your slime, Lisa? <laughs> all I remember about that uh, was that the teachers kind of tried to imply that the reason why everything went wrong Uh, was this sense of bloodlust. So what happens is that Jack uh, and his team of hunters, so the choir becomes a kind of class on their own called the hunters, and they go out and hunt for meat. And it's quite clear that initially they are terrified of this concept of hunting meat. They corner a pig and they can't bring themselves to kill it. Because, of course, if they've come from, you know, upper middle class to upper class background, you know, and they're not living in a situation that requires killing animals for food, which is what you know, most of human civilization would have had to do at some point in time up until like 200 years ago, that they are terrified of this idea of spilling blood. And it goes through that finally when they actually do rouse themselves up to kill something further along in the book, it would be a pig. They then become kind of, the impression that I got from the teachers was implied that they get intoxicated by this notion of killing something. And so that leads to them killing more pigs for meat And then 
it's not out of a kind of instinct, but it's out of kind of like a, a delusional. Um, I can't think of the word. They get themselves into a state. It's a bit uh, of a frenzy. Frenzy. Yes, yeah. that's what I was looking for. They get themselves into a frenzy, and this leads to them killing one, two, two of the characters in the book. And there's a third bit character of that dies. Going on but as well. yeah, yeah, and there's torture and all sorts of horrible things that happen. Now, looking back. I personally don't think that that is really where everything went wrong. It's it definitely not in the plays kill- a part. But- it plays a part, but I think it's a symptom of something else. And the thing that I think it's a symptom of is the pride of Jack. Jack, from the very beginning, wanted to be a leader. Um, he wanted to be a leader. However, the main character, well, arguably the main character of the book, Ralph, is elected as the leader by the rest of the group. And Jack just can't hack it for the whole book. <laughs> so That should be the tagline of the book. Jack, Jack can't, can't hack, hack it. it. Maybe that should be the name. <laughs> One of the Flies is a bit obscure. It comes up a bit later. Yeah, we'll go but, into that a bit later. Um, Jack can't hack it. And so he kind of takes his own little uh, group and he becomes the leader of them, of the hunters. And they go hunting meat. And it's quite obvious that he's just completely disobeying the orders of uh, Ralph, who wants to keep the fire at the top of the mountain going um, so that there's smoke so that they can be rescued. But Jack, at one point, just completely ignores this. And, in fact, a ship goes past and doesn't see them because the fire was was put out, because Jack had called in his hunters. And he doesn't seem to care. All he cares about is going out and killing pigs and playing boyish games in real life. It's important to point out to listeners that haven't read the book that there is ample food on the island. There's nuts and fruit and and crab and uh, fish or something like that. Mm. So the pigs aren't essential. Mm. They really aren't. But they are this, I suppose, vector through which these boys can establish some form of Leadership and meat's awesome, and yeah, <laughs> we're in Lent at the moment, so <laughs> <laughs> just putting that out there. But nonetheless, this kind of plays this whole thing of Jack not being able to hack it keeps playing itself out until eventually it goes from being uh, him begrudgingly having Ralph as the leader to him as he works himself into this kind of frenzy and sort of losing his mind state, uh, hiding behind the mask of the war paint that he puts on to go and hunt animals, um, hiding behind uh, the the walls, or not so much the walls, but the rocks of this kind of castle outpost that they find on the island, just made out of rocks and cliffs, establishes himself as an alternative leader because of strength. And that's really where all, I think all the problems go go wrong. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being anti-environmentalist or anything like that, but I just worry that the, the, the line that my teachers were taking about bloodlust was that somehow killing pigs makes people bad. Um, and I don't think that's really the core or the crux. It might have been the intention of William Golding, but I don't think that's the crux of human nature there. What makes people bad is sin. And the oh, I think- primal sin, I think, is pride. Mm. Intent. You know, it's interesting that you brought up intent because, like, and you're talking about the intention of um, Golding, but I think in terms of killing the pig, the intention is something that is really important as well. I mean, if you're killing it to sustain yourself, there's, I believe there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, God said we'd have dominion over the plants and animals and everything um, in Genesis. However, um, if you're just doing it for fun, I mean, you're not being stewards of the earth at all. You're just destroying creation for no reason. Yeah. 
But I think I I think that's not not the issue at play. No, here. it's definitely I don't that doesn't come in. I just thought I'd put it out there. Yeah. <laughs> I think the issue the issue at play here is the fact that Jack has this pride. He wants to be the leader, but he can't. And so at the end of the day, what happens when you don't have um, civilization? When you don't have reason? When you don't have these things that we can kind of take for granted within our own Western society? What you get is might makes right. That's mm. it. That's all you got. And whoever, yeah. All you've got is whoever has the biggest spear, whoever has the biggest gun, the biggest bomb, the biggest muscles, whatever. Most charisma. Yeah, not even. Yeah. Not even. It's the person who can kill the other guy mm. is the one who becomes the leader. And that's what happens in this book. Eventually, because he's the hunter, because he wants to go out hunting, First of all, it's because he doesn't think that Ralph is competent. Um, or not so much that he's not competent, but that he's not taking part in the fun. That everyone else wants to go out hunting and Ralph and Piggy are much more concerned with these rather trivial issues of being rescued off the island. Um, <laughs> and all the other boys get sick of it. Um, Especially they, the, the little ones. The little ones, yeah. yeah. And because they're children, they would much rather do all these fun things rather than do the important important work like building huts um, or, or maintaining the fire so that they get rescued. Slowly, however, or not so much slowly, it happens like in one chapter, this goes from being something that people choose to go into for the benefits of meat to something that's enforced through force. And so Sam and Eric, twins, uh, who are initially on Ralph's side but then get captured and mm. kind of not brainwashed but uh, taken hostage and kind of have a bit of a um, Stockholm Syndrome thing happening and become part <laughs> of the tribe uh, that Jack establishes. Really, that, that what it's saying, I think the book, what it's saying here, is that at the end of the day, without, without the forces of good, uh, without a notion of objective morality, without a notion of proper reason, all we have is just... The bigger guy treading on the smaller guy. Mm. Uh, if I can remember the quote correctly, it's it's some ancient. I forget who it is. But the the mighty do what they will and the weak suffer what they must. I think that's a little bit wrong. But that's really where man, stripped away from all notion of virtue and truth and goodness and essentially Christianity, that's where they're left at. It's just... People with spears attacking each other, and whoever has the biggest spear wins. Um, something interesting to meditate on in the book as well is this notion of authority. I mean, we were kind of rushed in reading this. We had a week, so I haven't had a lot of time to kind of meditate on this much, uh, delve into it. But um, I suppose when there's no notion of a firm, virtuous leader, fixed position of a leader... Uh, dissent is going to happen. Factions um, will ultimately become apparent and there will be fighting amongst people. And something like, I don't know whether I'm stretching this too far, far, but as a Catholic, you think about authority, you think about dissent, you think about the Reformation. I suppose, is that stretching it a little bit too far, do you think, Luke? Um, I mean, it's not a perfect analogy because I don't mm. think, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not familiar with the history, the political history of the Reformation, but I'm not entirely sure that Luther and, and Calvin necessarily enforced. Oh, I'm not Calvin. saying that at although, all. <laughs> although, although I would say that uh, Queen Elizabeth I 
mm. would have and Cromwell and, well, and those kinds of people. It's just interesting to think about how, you know, we're not in the book, we're not really sure whether Ralph has all the power or Jack has all the power, but all I found myself thinking, I'm quite simplistic like this, I suppose, is when I was reading this, I'm like, thank goodness we don't have this problem. I, you know, know that um, in the Catholic Church, our um, the person we're meant to look towards um, well, is ultimately Christ, but he's got his vicar on earth, which is the Pope. And in the end, the Pope makes the choices. You could say that the Pope has the conch. Uh, the conch is this shell that um, the boys have at the beginning, which sort of determines the power. Whoever holds the conch gets to speak. And whoever ultimately has the conch the most, uh, Ralph, is the authoritative figure and the leader. I think, though, the important thing to note there is it's not simply that whoever has the conch is right by yes. virtue of the fact that they have the conch. Mm. It's that... To, to bring it back to the Pope in the Catholic Church, it's that whoever has the conch, if you will, is in their decisions on faith and morals, guided by the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. So, at the end of the day, it's God who has the conch. It's this just actually, he works yes. through humans <laughs> uh, that that happens. I think that's an important distinction yes. to make to, to prevent any Obviously, Victoria's uh, analogies are a little bit off today. <laughs> But um, these are just things that, you know, flow into your mind when you're reading things. And I wish I'd had more time to kind of flesh it out. But here you're hearing the half-baked version of it today. So, that's okay. Maybe next week you'll have something a bit more articulate. (laughs) And just one more thing before we finish. The thing that I found really fascinating about this is that towards the end of the book, where it starts getting really good, um, the Lord of the Flies is revealed. What on earth the title of this book is about. And it's the head (laughs) of a pig uh, that's been stuck on a stake. As and a sort of peace offering, I suppose, to the beast. Yeah, As, yeah, they um, offer it to the beast. Yeah. Uh, the, the beast at the top of the mountain. In gratitude for its a, life and its sacrifice, whatever, something like that. To try and ward him off mm. from, uh, from attacking the rest of them that Jack's team kind of set up. And one of the boys who's on Ralph's side, uh, Simon. Simon, who's my favourite. Loses the plot quite a bit um, <laughs> and goes out into the forest and is speaking to this Lord of the Flies and the Lord of the Flies answered him. And the reason why he's called Lord of the Flies is because it's a rotting pig's head that's covered in flies. Mm. Now, of course, this this Lord of the Flies has this really um, imposing presence upon Simon. It's quite an interesting dialogue that he has that basically the, the pig's head is saying to him, look, do you think you can escape me? Do you think that... Um, that this is all worth it. And really this this interesting um, demonic presence uh, that this Lord of the Flies has. And it's interesting to note that uh, Beelzebub is literally translated into English as Lord of the Flies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Beelzebub, uh, who is the, the prince of devils uh, or Satan, depending on how you would interpret it. And I think that really speaks for... This is the point where everything really goes into madness. And I think that really it's not just that uh, this this pig is Lord of the Flies, but he's established himself uh, as Lord of, of the Island, Lord of the World, uh, if you will. And so he's the prince of this world as referred to in scripture. And I think really that is perhaps not intentionally by William Golding, but it's an interesting note that Beelzebub, Satan, the devil uh, or, or the prince of devils, um, has established his mark on this island through these boys because they have committed the sin of pride, or Jack has committed the sin of pride. Which and is the, the sin that Satan exactly. committed right at the beginning. Exactly. And everything just goes off track from there. Um, but we're pretty much out of time. Uh, so, 
there's a lot that can be said about this. Um, I mean, something I know that a lot of you guys might be thinking about is if you've been reading along with us, is that Lord of the Flies and Animal Farm have some comparisons as well. Think of that what you'd like, but you know, it's an interesting thing to bring up. Both have pigs. <laughs> both both go through leadership and descent and uh, fear and all that sort of stuff. So I think we've unintentionally hit a bit of a theme here. So yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps it was just. I mean, they were only like within ten years of each other. Hmm. It's possibly a bit both of a on theme. that those many lists of things you need to read before you die. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone just doesn't like politics. Um, (laughs) So our next book that we'll be reading will be A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor. Apparently her most famous work, uh, which none of us have read. Or heard of. (laughs) Um, Kiara. No, Kiara's not here to to say that. So we're just going to assume she hasn't read it either and hope that she doesn't protest. Um, But hey. I'm sure Kiara would be okay if she was here. I can hear Kiara on the other side of the room. No. Um, (laughs) So join us next week as we explore a Flannery O'Connor book. She's a great Catholic um, and a fantastic author, apparently. (laughs) It's terrible that I haven't read her. No, she comes up in um, pop culture a lot. So I'm assuming she's done some great stuff. Okay. That's a good (laughs) assumption to make. Um, So a good Catholic author is easy to find, it seems. (laughs) And that's the last joke Luke's going to make on this show. So, thank you for joining us here on Catholics Read. We hope you didn't get the impression that we all hated Lord of the Flies. No, it it did have some merits. I will point out that it it had merits. I would like to point out just before we finish that, uh, especially the description of the boys, uh, their physical appearance and stuff like that, I found um, very, very, um, very good, very well written and really gave you a good sense of the person. So, I will give them that. And, I mean, I think the only thing that threw, off, threw us off was... The description. Winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. And we're like, man, this is going to be mind-blowing. Um, <laughs> and then we just got really bored. Um, but other than that, fantastic things to think about. Definitely recommend reading it uh, if you don't mind really long descriptions or if you're really able to skim things like that. I'm mm. not, so I had to trudge through it. Uh, but, yeah, so that's William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Next week, Flannery O'Connor's Flannery O'Connor. Good Man is Hard to Find. And if anyone has any suggestions, please email us in um, because sometimes we're totally scratching our heads for books here. Because, mm, because sometimes books we think of good ones, yeah, but they're too long yeah. or they're too similar to something we've done before or we simply can't get three copies for us to all read. In yeah, books. yeah, preferably something that's like more than 70 years old um, and out of copyright, so we can go for free. Um, <laughs> and preferably something that's somewhat shortish, less than 200 pages or so um, because we've all got assignments and work and stuff. And, mm. um, but other than that, go for it. Um, oh, and as long as it's not heresy either, that's helpful. <laughs> that's I mean, helpful. it might be. I don't know. Maybe that would be interesting. Huh. Something that we can, like, you know, engage with as Catholics. Yes, you know? something that we can talk about. So, I mean, maybe not naked lunch. Like, yeah, maybe not naked lunch. Maybe not naked lunch. <laughs> but anything else might be all right. <laughs> okay, well, we hope you all have a good night or a good day. I've done that gag too many times, so that's going to be the last time I do that. So... Goodbye, everyone. Bye, bye. Bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.